But today's message is called The Meltdown, when Jesus' team is tested. And I want to begin with a quote there on the uh, bulletin that you have in front of you. There's a fill-in-the-blank there. I want to give that to you right off the bat. Now, even though this fill-in-the-blank is speaking of Judas Iscariot, I would like you to think of how it may apply to you, how it may apply to someone that you know or someone that is around you so we can make this a bit more personal. But the fill in the blank is this. When Christ is not what you want, you will surely give him up. When Christ is not what you want, then you will surely give him up. Here's what I mean. Clearly, whatever Judas is, and we're going to study him a little bit today, a little bit more next week, he clearly did not want what Jesus was. Jesus is a savior, a redeemer, a king, a messiah, and he did not want the package that was in front of him. He did not want Jesus as he saw him to be, and he gave him up to the enemy, to the authorities. Now, here's what we must understand before we move forward. You cannot make Jesus anything you want him to be. He is who he is. He calls the shots. He reveals what kind of king he is. You do not pick and choose Christianity. I don't care what what era we're in. I don't care what whether it's postmodern or not. You do not go and select pieces from Christianity, mix it in with another religion that's completely bogus. You either accept the religion as it is in its core or you reject it. You cannot continue to piecemeal things and add in things. You cannot select parts of Jesus and try to make him some neat little warm fuzzy guy that's just going to take care of you and be your little genie. That's not going to fly. Jesus is who Jesus is. You either accept him in total or you reject him in total. Judas was not willing to do that. And he gave him up. Who is Jesus to you? And are you willing to accept him as he reveals himself to be in Scripture? That is the question before us. Would you turn with me to Matthew 26, verse 1? We will get started. Matthew 26, 1 is page 703 in the Bibles handed to you. Matthew 26, 1. Now, as normal, some of you are new, so let me just bring you up to speed. Whenever the Gospels speak on an issue, many times the other guys want to chime in on it too. We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, as we come towards the end of Jesus' life, they all start chiming in. So instead of just reading Matthew's account, we're going to combine all four accounts. So as I read through it, you're going to say, hey, wait a second, it doesn't say that in Matthew. Wherever I deviate from the text that you're reading in front of you, that means I'm commenting from either Mark, Luke, or John. So for some of you, it's a lot easier to keep your finger as you're reading through and wait for me to get back to it and then keep reading through. And some of you, it's easier to just go ahead and leave it on your lap and only frequently look at it. But in general, just listen to my voice. So let's begin with just two verses straight out of Matthew, straight out of the NIV, perhaps what you have in front of you, and then we'll pray for the word. It begins like this, Matthew 26, 1, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, meaning all the stuff we've been studying for the last number of weeks. He said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. He's also going to go on to say that he's going to raise again and meet them in Galilee. But can you imagine the weight of these men that they have to carry knowing that their best friend 
their Lord, their Master, their Savior is going to die. As a matter of fact, we will learn shortly that they were so stressed out about it that they would fall asleep from exhaustion and sorrow. This is a huge deal. I called it the meltdown because this is where the pressure gets greater and greater and greater. And it seems like the wheels are going to start flying off this whole ministry thing. Everything that Jesus worked for, all these disciples he's put into for three solid years, living day in, day out, doing miracles, showing them extraordinary things of supernature. Then he's going to die. They have to watch him die. They got to see the pain. They got to see the anguish. They got to see the terrible things that are going to occur to their Lord. This is a rough time. And all of us as believers go through seasons of testing, of trial, of persecution, of difficulty. And the question that must be in our minds is will we stand in that day? Will we remain? There are days in my ministry, recent days, when I feel like just to make it through, I've got to put one foot in front of the other. One foot in front of the other. And sometimes I just feel like throwing it all in and giving it all up. Because it's just difficult. It's hard with the internal pressures, the regular life pressures, the ministry pressures. It is not easy to be a disciple of Christ. But he never said it would be. He always promised that it would be difficult. But with all that Jesus has done and what we have to look forward to, boy, it's worth it. It's worth it making it every day. Amen? Let's pray for the Word. Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes to the Word today that we might study and learn from you directly. That, Lord, if we are left to learn only what I have learned, Father, we're going to be shortchanged and we're not going to make it. We're not going to get it and we're not going to transform. Holy Spirit, have your way in this building, in our lives, in our hearts. And I ask that you would illuminate your scripture, that we would see what is truly there. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's how it would go with the multiple accounts. And it would say this. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. It was only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Jesus said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and to kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. There's two things you need to know on this opening portion. There are two historical notes. Number one, every time you read the Gospels, when you read the book of Acts, as a matter of fact, when you read the New Testament, you must always remember one thing. Though we are speaking of an Israel region, though we are speaking of the Middle East, Rome is in charge. They're always in charge in these stories. They pick and choose leadership as they wish. They depose leadership, they raise up leadership insofar as it suits their needs. Therefore, even the Jewish leaders are subject to Rome ripping them right out of their leadership and putting someone else in place. And that was never more true in the second note. They're meeting now in the palace of what? The high priest. What is his name? Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas is fascinating for one particular reason, and let me explain why. He is 
holds what position? The high priest. Now, in the Old Testament, the high priest was a little different than in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the high priest was high priest for life. It was a lifelong term. No new high priest till the last guy passes away. Then you get a new one. For a life appointment, it was a massive deal. You've got to remember how powerful this guy is. He is selected out from all the priests in the line of Aaron. He has to be a very specific family line. Then he's chosen from everybody else to be the primary representative for Israel. As a matter of fact, when the Holy of Holies was around and the Ark of the Covenant was there, remember it was behind a curtain and only one man, one time a year, could intercede for the people and go into that room. And that was the high priest. But that changed. When Rome was in charge, they began to take those guys out and put new guys in. Anyone that would work politically. As a matter of fact, for the last 30 years of Israel's history before AD 70 when the temple was destroyed by Rome there were 28 high priests in 30 years that's called turnover pretty rapid the reason why Caiaphas is amazing is because for 18 of those 30 years he reigned that means you got to fit all the other 27 in the remaining spots that's pretty fast how in the world did this one guy, Joseph Caiaphas, be able to last 18 years in that environment? You've got to be pretty sly. You've got to be pretty good at politics. You've got to know how to work Rome. You've got to know how to work the Jewish people. You've got to know how to keep everybody quiet and everybody calm. Because the thing that we know for sure is Rome will not tolerate rioting. When Rome is busy trying to conquer the known world and they're stretched out really thin, they don't want to have to reconquer the areas they've already conquered. So they had one basic rule for everyone that they conquered, and that is just shut up and lay down. Don't do anything else. Don't uprise. Don't cause a problem. Don't raise any cane. Don't do anything. Just sit there and be normal. So every leader they would put in place, his main job was to keep everybody quiet. Just keep everything mellow. Well, right here, you realize the Jewish leaders want to get rid of Jesus more than anything in the world, but they're not going to risk Rome coming down on them. So they said, keep it quiet, don't do it, or there's going to be a riot. If a riot hits, Rome's going to pay attention to us, and they're going to take all the leadership out of, out of uh, where they're standing right now. We're not going to risk that. As a matter of fact, if you read in the book of Acts... Paul saw a very similar environment. When Paul was in Ephesus, he did some ministry, and it started ruining the local trade of making false gods. Do you remember that story? And sure enough, they all got in an uproar, all the Ephesian people. They ran into the stadium, and they started shouting for hours on end, Great is the goddess Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, they started this huge riot, and they wanted to rip Paul apart, and they got some of his buddies. And all of a sudden, a man from the city ran into the stadium. He said, everybody, chill out, quiet down, calm down. No, 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 no. I don't care about Paul. I don't care about these other guys. Kill him. Do whatever you want to do. But keep it quiet. Do not riot. And he was able to shut down thousands of people because they knew what Rome would do. This is the background that Jesus is to be killed under. You've got to do it quietly. How excited were they when one of his own 12 handed him over? very quietly next story begins with this six days before the passover jesus arrived at bethany where lazarus lived whom jesus had raised from the dead 
Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Okay, let's pause for a moment. Let me set the tone. You all remember that on a map, Jesus spent majority of all of his life in the north, in the Sea of Galilee region. He never went south, but for a few random times, short times. Down south was Jerusalem. Well, up north in the Galilee, everybody knew him. Down south, they didn't know him too well, but he was very well known in one particular town. Every time he went south, he would stay in the same town, the town of his friends. That town was called Bethany. It's a very short trip from Bethany to Jerusalem, so he would just stay in the suburbs of Jerusalem. And all his friends lived there. Who were his friends? Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus, the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. Obviously, he became the most famous. And we know the sisters as Mary and Martha because we studied about them not too long ago. So now he's back with his crew, but he's not at their house. He's at another guy's house in town that is a friend of theirs, such a good friend that Martha can serve at this guy's house. Lazarus is invited. Mary's there. Everybody's there. But his name is Simon the what? The leper. Now, I'm assuming he didn't give himself that nickname. That's not something that you would just go, hey, I want you to just go ahead and call me leper. That's cool. Because remember, what happens to a leper in that environment? Completely ostracized. Nobody wants anything to do with you. If you're a leper, nobody comes into your house. Nobody gets near you. Nobody touches you. So the only thing we can surmise about this guy is that it's very likely that he was healed by Jesus. If he is a healed leper and gets a clean bill of health from the priest, everyone can be in his house. Everyone can be around him. But you never leave that moniker. You never leave the stigma. Hey, I remember you. Didn't you used to have leprosy? He heard that his whole life. But now he was a testimony to Jesus Christ and the power that he brought. So here they are at the home of Simon the leper. Everybody's there. And then Mary walks in and does something rather unusual. It says, Then Mary came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of a, about a pint of pure nard. All right, anybody, anybody wearing nard today? Anybody sporting a little bit of nard? Okay. Uh, no. Bizarre. What are we talking about? Okay. Nard was a very, very expensive perfume. It was kind of like a perfume kind of concentrated. Very, very, very expensive. And you go, well, how expensive? Well, it says later on in the story it was worth more than a year's wages. So, if we, this about a pint of it, this is pretty expensive stuff. It's in a really, really expensive container. Alabaster is a very fine marble that's hewn out of and brought from Egypt. So, very, very nice alabaster jar with about a pint of pure nard. Now, what is today's estimated average yearly income? Anybody have any just guesses on that? What? 35 grand. That's probably pretty good, right? I mean, across the nation. 35 grand. So now we have perfume that's worth 35 grand. Ladies, anybody wearing 35 grand perfume today? Because if you are, we have a sound system that we need to... uh... (laughs) Just kidding. 35 grand perfume. Now, in order to understand this story, you've got to understand that she is about to do something with $35,000 perfume. What is she going to do with it? Well, here's what the story says. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. As he's reclining at the table, poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The whole house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. That's weird. 
Have you ever done that before? You're maybe kicking back at McDonald's. Somebody starts pouring something on your head. You're like, what are you doing? I don't know. I just thought I'd anoint you while you're eating. The whole thing is strange. We look at it and we go, wow, how biblical. It's just weird. Okay, so all of a sudden you start pouring it now now granted in the ancient world in the Middle East They didn't so do so much as let's bathe and clean away smell. Let's just mask it That was kind of their groove. Let's just put something on more over the top of it And but she's not just trying to perfume the guy she poured it on his head now Why would you pour it on his head because that just makes your hair greasy, right? So why would you pour it on his head? You're immediately supposed to go back to the Old Testament and realize that's a bit of a anointing issue When Samuel, the great prophet, anointed King David, he poured oil on his head. That was the idea. They would pour it and it would run down within your hair. But now she doesn't just pour it on his head. And remember, she broke the jar, so it's not useful anymore. She's going to use it all. She not only poured it on his head, she poured it on his what? His feet. What is that a symbol of? That's a symbol of humility because only slaves wash people's feet. So she has now dropped down to his level. Then she begins to do what? Wipe his feet with her hair now a couple things you'll know about that number one You have to get down by the feet in order to wipe it with your hair and it doesn't work with a bob Are we all clear on that ladies if you're just trying to rub your head on his feet? That's not gonna fly So she obviously had longer hair now in that day and age you had to have your hair tied up You never undid your hair and let it go except in the presence of your husband So you need to be very clear that when she undoes her hair that is this idea of absolute surrender She is now down at his feet, wiping his feet with her hair. Where in the world did she get this idea? Well, it actually is fascinating because Matthew, Mark, and John all tell Mary's story. Luke tells a very different story. Luke tells a story that was early in Jesus' ministry. When Jesus was at the house of a pompous, arrogant, smug Pharisee, also by the name of Simon. As he's sitting in this house, he comes in and Simon has him there for a dinner, allegedly in his honor. But he's there to test him. He's there to hassle him. He thinks he's fine. He doesn't know who this Jesus guy is. Allegedly, he's a prophet. When Jesus walks in, he's not treated super great. As a matter of fact, this guy just consistently is trying to see how he can push Jesus' buttons. And right in the middle of the meal, in walks a lady that everybody knows. She is known as a notorious sinner. That's a fancy way of saying, I know what corner you work on. I know who you are. I know what you do. Everybody, all the guys in the town know exactly who you are. How she gets in, we don't know. That's a whole different message. She gets into the house, falls down at Jesus' feet, and starts bawling. As she's sobbing, she's pouring her tears down on his feet and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Now, you would imagine that that story had been told and retold and retold, and Mary knew very well this story. So when it came time for her to do an act of of devotion to her God, to her Lord, to her Jesus, she said, I'm going to take that to a whole new level. She takes a $35,000 bottle of perfume, breaks it, and falls at his feet and begins to do the very same thing. Well, Not everybody liked that idea. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. They were angry. Why this waste of perfume, they asked. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. This perfume could have been sold at a high price for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. You go, hold on, Judas. Hold on, what's your your big deal? So what? She can do whatever she wants with her perfume. 
why would they all begin to object? Because everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Yeah, yeah, why are you wasting it? Why are you wasting it? Two things I think are significant. Number one, what have they been doing for the last three years? Hanging out with Jesus, ministering to the poor, living off nothing, constantly giving, giving, giving. They're in a poor mentality. The mentality of we don't need anything to survive. We must give it all away. Now they're seeing a waste of extravagance, and that's irritating to them. The second thing uh, that's important is how much this is worth. We already said that it's worth more than a year's wages. But here's an idea in that day what it would have meant. Do you remember the story when Jesus fed the 5,000? you guys remember that? We studied that as a, as a family. Remember that was 5,000 men. Are we all clear on that? There was also women and children that were in addition to that. So let's say 7,500 people. It was a pretty big group of people. When those guys were told by Jesus, you go feed them. Philip walks up to Jesus and he says, 200 denarii would scarcely be enough to feed all these people. In other words, where are we going to get that kind of cash? The gospel accounts say that her perfume was worth 300 denarii. In other words, she now just poured out the ability to feed in excess of 7,500, perhaps, what, 10,000 people. And they're looking at it and going, what are you doing, girl? What are we doing here? Aren't we doing ministry? Why are you wasting this? And they began to hassle her about it. So, but why did Judas take the lead on this? Mark tells us. Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Huh, that's weird. God puts the one crook in charge of the money. Strange. Think he did that on purpose? Yep. Pretty fascinating. Gave Judas, uh, what, constant opportunity. Constant opportunity to either be a good and faithful steward or to ruin everything. Some would say that he gave him enough rope to hang himself. Oh, that's funny. Okay, I'm moving on. Everyone's like, I don't get it. What's the end of the story? He hangs himself. All right, there you go. Okay. Aware of this. See, this is what happens when jokes bomb. Aware of this. Aware of this, it says they rebuked her harshly. Aware of this, Jesus said to him, Why are you bothering this woman? Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing to me. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. The poor you will always have with you. You can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. When she poured this perfume on my body beforehand, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, whoever this go wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she did will be told in memory of her. And who are we talking about today? Her. Because Jesus wanted to honor her. It's pretty powerful. Contrast that with the next line in Luke. Then Satan entered Judas. Her act of devotion to her Savior, he's a puppet for the ultimate enemy. Then Satan entered Judas, one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, and he went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard, and he discussed with them how he might betray Jesus to them. And he asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? They were delighted to hear this, and they promised and agreed to give him money. He consented, so they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Two things are significant. Number one, how much is 30 coins worth? We have no idea. All we know is it's the same wording that is used to buy a slave. So Jesus was sold as a slave. Is that befitting a king? No. Second thing we got to ask, why did Judas do it? 
We don't know. It's all speculation. As a matter of fact, some people believe that Judas was a good guy all the way to the end. He was a nationalist. He wanted Israel to reign, and he forced Jesus' hand by betraying him and turning him over. I'm not buying it. Maybe. I think I'm still of the view that he turned at some point. I think he joined up with Jesus for mixed motives, and I think he was very disappointed. And then along the way, he realized he could get a little something out of it. He hung around. But here's what you must know. Throughout this whole story, we're about to see that dramatically, no one had any idea. In the, here's what you need to understand. These guys, only 12 of them, it's not, we're not talking about a massive group of people. 12 guys lived together for three years, day in and day out, and nobody knew. That's impressive. Not only that, but two times at least, Jesus sent them out into the ministry field to do miracles, cast out demons, heal people. Do you remember all that? And how did he send them out? Two by two. That means Judas's partner didn't even know. Here's two guys out there doing miracles, and he didn't come back and go, Hey, mine's a dud. My partner's a dud. He didn't do anything. I'm out there doing this incredible stuff, and this guy is doing nothing. Judas did everything those guys did. He did all the same miracles. He did all the same extravagant things. He saw all the same stuff. He spent all the time with Jesus. But he's not one of them. And nobody had any idea. They're going to be pretty shocked when they find out. I will tell you this. Had they known, he would have never left the Last Supper. He would have never made it out the door. That had torn him apart. It says this On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, just before the Passover feast, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, the disciples came to Jesus, who said to them, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And they asked, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat it? He sent two of his disciples, Peter and John, telling them, Go into the city, and as you enter it, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples left, went into the city, did as Jesus had directed them, and found things just as Jesus told them, and they prepared the Passover couple things you need to know about this number one what's the passover it keeps using these phrases interchangeably and you may be a little lost what is passover what's the feast of unleavened bread well you need to realize they're used interchangeably for a reason the way it works is there is an eight day long festival period for the jewish people it's kicked off with the first day called passover then there's a seven day long festival called the feast of unleavened bread all of it together was known as what but Passover week. So all these terms keep getting used. What is Passover? Kicks everything off. It's a big deal. You remember the story? Some of you have been in church for long enough that you can tell me better than I can tell you. Some of you are brand new, so let me bring you up to speed. In Exodus chapter 12, we learn about the time when Israel as a nation was under bondage to Egypt. They were in bondage for 400 years, over four generations of people. They were absolute slaves, and Egypt was never going to let them go. Well, then God brought about a deliverer by the name of Moses, and his brother's name was 
Aaron, those two guys together, walked up to Pharaoh on God's behalf and said, we, we say that God says, let my people go. Well, how did Pharaoh feel about it? Very resistant. So God did a series of miraculous events that would pummel the nation of Egypt. Well, it all culminated in the final plague, which was extremely dramatic. It was known as the angel of death. Are we all familiar with the story? Now, in the movie, right? You all seen the Ten Commandments movie? It's a green fog, all right? All right. What happened was, is God said, tell Pharaoh and all of Egypt this. I am going to send an angel of death through your nation, through the land of Goshen, where the Israelites are, where the Egyptians were. I'm going to send an angel of death through, and he is going to kill the firstborn male of every household. Now, that's a pretty dark warning. But in order to not kill the Israelites, those were his chosen people, he gave them instructions. He said, in order to avoid this terrible plague, this is what you must do. I want you to take a lamb, an unblemished, spotless lamb, and I want you to kill it, drain some of its blood into a bowl, eat the rest of it, in a dinner. Now, for all of us that have been in the church for a long time, we're like, ooh, this is super biblical. This sounds really neat. It's just weird. Okay? Just start hacking apart little baby lambs. This whole thing sounds odd to me, right? And you've got to think about it, not just as a church folk, but think about it as someone just hearing this for the first time. How weird is this? You then take a plant called hyssop, mix it around, and then paint literal blood on the door frame of your house, on the wood. Paint it on the sides, on the top, on the other side. That way, when the angel of death comes cruising through your area and your neighborhood, he will stop, see the blood, and what? Pass over your house. That's where the whole phrase came from. That's why it's called Passover. And the Jews have celebrated it every year since then. Now, it was not like he didn't have a map and he needed to stop and go, I can't see it. Is there blood on that one? I can't see it. Do I kill somebody? What do I do? Okay. The idea was symbolic, right? About the door frame of the house. Now, I hope I don't have to tie into you how that's a foreshadowing of Jesus. Are we all clear on how awesome that is? Oh, look, the cross is made of wood. Oh, look, Jesus shed his blood. Oh, look, he's always referred to as the Lamb of God. I mean, the whole thing is pointing towards Jesus. That's a whole different message. But do we understand... This is the Passover. Jews celebrate it a little differently than we as believers do. We highlight Jesus. They highlight a coming Messiah. Now, the other thing you need to realize, he said, I want you to go make the preparations for our meal. I want you to go into a town, and you're going to see this guy carrying water, a water jar. Now, that would be really awkward if you walked into town and everybody's all over the place carrying water jars. You're like, are you him? Are you him? Are you him? Why would that be a good signal to talk to the guy? Because in the ancient world, in that place, what? Men don't carry water. That was a woman's job. Only women carried water. The only reason a man would ever carry water is if there were absolutely no women around. Well, where would you ever find an environment like that? It's interesting. There is a number. There's four main sects or four main groups in the Jewish world at that time. One of them were called the Essenes. The Essenes were a series of monks. They were all male. So they did all their own work. They carried their own water. So one of the views that scholars have is that Jesus ate in a Essene community. 
he met up with and was prepared for by an Essene man. Why is that important? A couple reasons. One, that, it, that he would even eat it there. Two, if you ever try to figure out the chronology of events of the last week of Jesus, it's super complicated. Sometimes they'll go, it's Wednesday, then it's Thursday, then it's back to Wednesday again. You're getting really lost. One guy starts on this day, another guy starts on this day, and you get really confused. And one of the ways that they have rectified the chronology is that the Essene community was a few days different. And you need to realize, if one guy's following the Essene calendar, he would say one thing. If another guy's following the standard Jewish calendar, he would say another. So just so you understand, there's a bunch of stuff that's loaded in here that you may not see right from the top. The last thing that you need to understand is right here is where John puts in, they make the preparations for the meal, and the Last Supper begins. Before the food is delivered, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. You guys remember that famous story? Matthew doesn't record it at all. So we're going to skip that. But no, this is where it occurs. Jesus takes off his outer garment, puts a towel around his waist, and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, you also need to realize that you go, well, this is, they're about to enter into a mealtime. That's going to be like three hours. What did they talk about? John includes four solid chapters of all the stuff they talked about that you will miss if you only read Matthew's account. So you may want to go back and take a look at those four chapters. Here's how we see it. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. While they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he testified, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one of you who is eating with me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. And Jesus replied, It is one of the twelve, one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me, will betray me. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture, He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. For I tell you the truth, whoever, any, whoever accepts anyone I send, accepts me. Whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. The Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him, as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. For it would be better for him if he had not been born. Whatever you make Judas out to be, you don't want Jesus to ever say about you, it's better that you were never born. He's going to be a bad guy no matter what you make him out to be. The disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is who? John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to that disciple and he said, hey, ask him which one he means. I love that. It's just kind of like I'm tired of guessing. Just ask him, John. Leaning back against Jesus, John asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. That's the second time Satan has gone in and out of that guy. We have severe possession issues going on. He is now an absolute housing for the enemy of Christ. This guy is way off base. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, Yes, it's you.
Now, nobody else saw that conversation. What's fascinating is when everyone else called Jesus Lord, he called him what? Rabbi. Because he's not his Lord, obviously. What you are about to do, Jesus said to Judas, do quickly. Jesus told him that, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. That's a poetic way of saying and things got worse. A couple things that we need to understand. The first one is this. John records that at this point, right here at the Last Supper, while Jesus is thinking about dying, as he's just told them they would, there would be betrayal, they start an argument about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Can you imagine these guys? They still have no idea. Can I have you pass out the communion elements? Now, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to teach through the passage on the Last Supper as we begin to wrap up today. And I want you to take the little piece of matzah, hang on to it. I want you to take the little juice in the little baby cup that's made for super, super small people. I want you to hang on to it. And as I teach through this, we will all take it together at the end of it. But here's how the story went. While they were eating, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then after taking the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Take this and divide it among you. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And they all drank from it. I tell you, Jesus said, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine from now until the coming of the kingdom of God. And that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. A couple interesting things you need to know about it. Number one, when we take communion monthly, Russ, Mark, one of the pastors or elders lead you through it, and almost always they're reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That is Paul's account of this event. Paul was not there. As a matter of fact, it makes it more interesting when most scholars believe that he wrote 1 Corinthians before any of the Gospels were written. So how did he know? He says, Jesus gave this to me personally. Jesus revealed the event and told him what to do. Do we know how to do it exactly? No. As a matter of fact, at the end of Paul's account, he says, and when I come to you, I'll give you more instruction. We don't have the further instruction. And you go, no, we totally know how to do it. What? You pass out the little stuff, and then we all eat it together. No, that's not correct. As a matter of fact, one gospel account has him eat, taking the bread first. The other gospel account has him taking the wine first. So which is it? The only reason we give you the bread and take that first and then take the juice second is to wash it down. That's it. There is only a practical reason. It's got nothing to do with tradition or value. It's just practical. You'd hate to go <laughs> and get stuck in, with this little thing in your mouth, right? So we drink that second. But do you understand that that's not how they did it? They had a drastically different way of doing it. They, number one, 
did it during a Seder meal, a Passover meal, which took hours. This was a whole meal, which I'm going to go over the basics with you in one second. The other thing you need to know is in a Seder meal, four cups of wine are used and they're drank communally. You drink a little bit, pass it to the next guy. He passes it to the next guy. The reason we don't do that, it's gross. Right? Now you got what, like 400 people here? Well, we all got the bubonic plague when we walk out of here. So yeah, once again, it's a practical hygiene thing. Hey, have a little cup, all right? That's why. Now, a lot of people do that in different denominations, in a lot of different um, areas of faith. Some do the rip and dip method. You all heard that one, right? Tear the bread apart, dip it in the cup, right? That way you got a bunch of floaties there at the bottom, right? But now nobody has to drink it, right? You just get it on your bread. That's completely legit, too. It's not saying that any of those are wrong. You just need to understand none of us are doing it like the original meal. If you want to do it like the original meal, let's go through a whole Seder. Now, every year we put on a Seder here at Bridgeway. Some of the Jewish believers here lead us in it, and they, have, they do it magnificently. We actually got maxed out last time. We could only seat a certain amount of people. In the new building, we're going to have a little bit more uh, space. Thanks, Jason. And we're going to have a little bit more space to do this. But there was about 350 people that went through the Seder. And you have to dedicate three hours to it, right? It's a long deal. So this is how it went for them. When you begin a Seder, it begins with a blessing by the host, the person that's putting on the Seder. They put a blessing over the people. They do a blessing over the first cup of wine. You take the first cup of wine that's in a chalice or whatever, some type of cup or goblet. And that is a cup known as the cup of sanctification. Sanctification means set apart for God. So we start the whole meal by saying we have now been set apart by God to be blessed specially, to be loved on by our king. So you take the first cup of red wine of sanctification. Then you eat what's called bitter herbs. Now, bitter herbs, it's everything from the original bitter herbs that they ate in the Egypt region to parsley in salt water. Okay, where you just basically got to make it nasty. That's all that's all that matters. You get some type of herb and make it taste gross. That's the point. Why? Because it's supposed to remind you of the bitterness of bondage and slavery. You're supposed to hearken back to the 400 years that they were in bondage to Egypt and about how horrible it was. And it's supposed to leave a bitter taste in your mouth. Does that make sense? That's why they do that. So they eat the bitter herbs. Then. They give the message of Passover. I gave you the three-minute version. They give you the long version. Okay, here's what the Passover was all about. Now, Jews just talk about the coming Messiah, whereas the Christians talk about how Jesus fits into the Passover. All right? Then you take, you sing the first part of a hymn. It's called the Hillel. Now, the Hillel is little pieces of psalms from 113 to 118, all mixed in together into one hymn, one song. That you sing the first half at the meal at that time. All these guys would have done this. Then the second cup of wine is passed. That is a cup of redemption. Jesus, or the coming Messiah, is going to buy his people back from sin. So this is looking forward for the Jews, looking back for the Christians to what Jesus did. Then you pass out, you break and pass out the unleavened bread. Why is it unleavened? Because when they had to get out of Egypt, they had to get out fast. Do you remember? And you don't have time for yeast to rise. So you grab the bread, make it cheap, make it easy, make it fast, and get out of there. So you're remembering back to when you didn't have time to wait. So you eat unleavened bread. What is matzah? 
It's unleavened bread. That's why we have this. Then what happens? Well, you then eat the meal proper, which is usually roasted lamb. So you go through a whole meal of having the roasted lamb. Then you take out the third cup. This is the cup that Jesus lifted and began to say his words that he gave to us recorded. This is the cup of salvation. This is the cup that says, and the Messiah will save his people. Of course, Jesus knows that that's him. So he said, this is my new covenant. I'm here. This is all about me. And he raised up the cup of salvation. Then you finish the second half of the Hallel. Finish out that hymn. And then at the end of the meal, when you're all ready to go home, you crack out the, third, the fourth round of wine. And that is the cup of celebration, which you basically are now going to thank God for what he has done. And then you close up shop and leave. That is a Seder. We obviously don't have three hours. So what do we do? Grab a little piece of matzah, grab a little piece of this, and we're good to go. That's why we do what we do. Do you see? So one thing that we must not do is try to make the method sacred. Because we're not doing it right, even right now. Nobody's doing it right. It's all part of this longer process. But what we're doing is remembering on a consistent basis that it's all about Jesus. You've never been able to earn your way to heaven. It's always been about his free gift. It's always been about his sacrifice and his blood. It's never been about you. It's never been anything about you as far as you're good enough to get there. You've earned your way. None of that. That's all baloney. It's all garbage. Every month we remember and we yell out from the rooftops. It's all about Jesus. That's what this is for. It's not to do something sacred for tradition because it's cool for the kids. This is real to be able to say, I remember Jesus. Would you take the bread with me? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving your son. Jesus, the sacrifice that you did for us is unfathomable. We don't understand it. We don't get it. But we're thankful for it. We pray right now, Lord, that you would be glorified in our midst, that you have done everything that we could not do. You were the one that did all the heavy lifting. You're the one that extended the grace to us. You're the one that initiated everything. Jesus, you dying on the cross is the reason why we are here. Would you take the juice with me? In taking this juice, Lord, we proclaim that this new covenant that you launched... A covenant of mercy, of grace, something that you've always been about, you've always done, but you culminated on the cross. We now are forgiven for those of us that believe in you, for those of us that confess that you are Lord. We are given the right to become children of God. We are freed from our sins. We are freed from accusation. We have no condemnation and we are freed from our sins past, present and future. May you be glorified in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. Where I am going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. And Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written in Zechariah 13:7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. 
Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Peter declared, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Will you really lay down your life for me? Jesus asked. I tell you the truth today. Yes, this very night before the rooster crows twice. You yourself will disown me three times. You will deny three times that you even know me. Now think, they're having this dinner at night, and the rooster crows at 3 a.m. It's not very far away. Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they said. He said, but now... If you have a purse taken and a bag, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what was written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, we have two swords. That is enough, he replied. And Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. When they had sung a hymn, and when they had finished praying, Jesus left with the disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. On the other side, there was an olive grove called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press, where you squish and crush the olives into oil. That is the same word used for the crushing of Jesus in spirit. Same word. He and his disciples went into the grove, and on reaching that place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful, deeply distressed and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. Many of you have asked me on email, in person, Lance, what happened on the cross? What really occurred there? Did the father really turn his back on Jesus? Was he forsaken? Was God killed? How did it work? What happened with the Trinity? I don't know. I don't know. I have a lot of speculation, but I don't know. But I will tell you this. It is bad enough to take Jesus, the toughest man who ever lived, and make him sorrowful to the point of death. Whatever it is, I don't think we will ever know the depths of it. I don't even think we'll know fully in heaven. It was nothing to do with a physical death, in my opinion. It was nothing to do with how it was going to hurt to hang on a cross. Because quite frankly, men have died far worse deaths than that and had a lot more courage. It had nothing to do with the physicality of it. It had everything to do with what was about to occur spiritually, which we have no idea of knowing. How does Jesus die for the sins of the world? How does Jesus die for all of our combined eternities? How does that work? We have no idea. But it almost destroyed our Lord. He withdrew a stone's throw beyond them, fell with his face to the ground, and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. If you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. 
And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping, exhausted from sorrow. Simon, he said to Peter, are you sleeping? Why are you sleeping? Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? Get up, watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed the same thing. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they didn't know what to say to him. So he left them, went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. And when he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? Look, the hour is near. The son of man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, for here comes my betrayer. We close with two thoughts. Number one. As I mentioned at the beginning, every believer goes through a time of persecution, difficulty, pain, seasons in their life. Will you stand? Two, as far as what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf, what he has agonized over, what he is about to do in our story on the cross... With all that He changed in your heart, in mine, in nature, in supernature, in all of that, He will take His children home. For neither death, nor life, nor principality, nor power, nor height, nor any of that, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And you must know this, He did not die for nothing. He died to take His children home. May no one leave today without allowing that sacrifice to be meaningful for you. He did not die for no reason. He died for you. What does it matter to you? To me, it's my only hope. And as to many that will join me in clinging to the garment of Jesus and crying out, Save me, Lord, to as many that believe in His name, to as many that will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, repent from their sins, turn and follow Him, will be saved. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for today. Thank you for a walk through a history that for you was so tumultuous. Yet, Jesus, you paid for it all. You did everything we could not. You've set us up for those that are your children, for life eternal that has already begun. Lord, we long to be with you. We long to be healed. We long for the pressure and the persecution and the pain to cease. And we long for peace. May we understand and drink in your grace, your peace, your safety, and emerge from here victorious and joyful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.